have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 47. Presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are a hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went, and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers, and he gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Thus far the reading of God's word. You can turn in the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 10. We're on the doorstep of the second great discourse in Matthew's Gospel, the first great discourse being the Sermon on the Mount. The second great discourse will be in uh, this commissioning of the 12 apostles, uh, particularly to the lost house of Israel or the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, but even in that commission, um, the Lord glimpses a time that is beyond that commission where the servants of the Lord will continue to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, but it will be in the midst of great difficulty. It will be in the midst of persecution. It will be in the midst of division. It will be in the midst of hardship. But this is the setting of this calling, verses 1 through 4, and we turn our attention to that this morning. This is God's word. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing.
Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for your son. We give you thanks for your wisdom, Lord, which you assure us is on display in your church as you are gathering Jew and Gentile alike in the Lord Jesus Christ. One people to whom you have granted access into your presence, into your fatherly favor. This is wonderful, O Lord, as apart from Christ we have no hope. We are lost. We are strangers. Far from you, far from grace, far from the promises. And so even now as we consider our King and his tender heart for the lost and the sending of servants to gather, to bind, to retrieve, to instruct. Father, help us to grow in confidence towards you and in a humble submission to your ways that are continuing even down to this very day as the gospel goes forth and we are called to receive of the riches of Jesus Christ. So help us, Father, even now, for we ask in Christ's name, amen. Reading a biography of a Christian intellectual who grew up in the early 20th century in the boarding schools of England and they described the system that was in place there as very different from the schools in which I grew up. One of the main differences that I noted was the use of prefects. You know what a prefect is? Probably you do if you're reading some literature. Uh, prefects uh, were uh, students who were given authority over other students. The headmaster would select them and then deputize them, as it were, <laughs> to go among the student body and exercise his authority. This was very different from the public high school that I went to, <laughs> where the thought of one student exercising authority over another student was grounds to fight that student. <laughs> but that probably says more about my sinful heart and more about my nature as an American than it does about what is good and optimal and wise. The biography rehearsed probably what you would expect, both lovely iterations of this student leadership and abysmal iterations of this student leadership. I guess it's not all that strange if you played sports in high school. Every team had captains, every team had leaders, whether formal or informal, and it was similarly a mixture of good and bad. Some were true leaders, even at that young age, and some did not do a credit to their office and made it hard to follow them. I'm struck here at the gift of authority that Jesus gives to men. It strikes me as almost a second stumbling block for sinners, doesn't it? And think about that. I mean, we've seen through the first nine chapters that Jesus Christ truly is remarkable. Like, we've seen that. I mean, he had a remarkable beginning. Magi from the east coming, worshiping him, the Lord's providence protecting him from Herod, the flight to Egypt, the return, all of that was pretty remarkable. His baptism is pretty remarkable. Heaven opens. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. A public demonstration. This is not an ordinary man. Then he teaches. And even those who are dead in sin look at the Sermon on the Mount like, well, that's actually pretty remarkable. Yeah, that's not ordinary. You don't even need to have the light of saving salvation to be able to see that. And then he heals. Not just one or two, not just trivial diseases, but some pretty incredible situations of death and brokenness. They all are remedied at his hand. So at this point, we're like, this man is remarkable. 
You're starting to get to the point where you're like, yeah, I'll sit at his feet. I'll follow this king. I belong to him. I'll belong to him. And then he's like, these guys are actually in charge. <laughs> you're like, wait, what? Who's in charge? Who wields your authority? Who stands in your name as those who declare the forgiveness of sins, as those who heal? That guy? A prefect? Steve from gym class? <laughs> I can run faster than Steve. I do it every day in gym class. Steve can't do a pull-up. <laughs> and he's somehow standing at the gate of the kingdom? It struck me as kind of a second stumbling block. See what I mean by that? By the time he convinces us that he is worthy to be followed, he says, okay, following me means that you're going to sit in the structure of the kingdom that I set up. As I reflected on that, and this is not a novel conclusion, and it ties to my earlier observation, it seems that he does that to wage war on our pride. It's a double assault on our proud hearts that admit of no other Lord but self. The first assault is lovely and beautiful and good. It says, I alone am Lord and <laughs> I'm very worthy. But pride doesn't go away that easily, does it? It seems like he sets up this whole system, this whole structure where he's willing to exercise his authority through weak and sinful men to wage a double assault on that pride. This is so necessary, is it, for you to grow in humility that I'm going to have you not submitting directly unto me, as it were, but to me as I send out men who look a lot like you. Oh, the Lord's wisdom's so good, isn't it? Or you're all hardening your heart and pride towards me right now, in which case you're proving my point inadvertently. <laughs> the excellencies of Christ's ways are harder to see here, but make no mistake, they are still excellent, for they come from his hand. Now, we need to make the point that just like that English school system, just like those sports teams, certainly it's a mixed bag when sinful men are placed in positions of authority. That was true among the apostles as well. Judas was robbing from the purse, as it were, even as he stood in the presence of glory. Christ was aware that abuses would exist, and yet this is his way. Let's see if we can't see something of the excellencies of Christ on display in the delegation of authority to men who look more like us than like Christ most of the time. So first, let's consider in compassion the Lord gives authority. And then second, let's consider in compassion the Lord uses weakness. First, in compassion the Lord gives authority. Verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Notice first that Jesus giving authority to these men is an exercise of his compassion for people. To see that plainly, we just have to go back a few verses when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he calls these 12 men to himself and he gives them authority and he sends them to retrieve lost sheep. So that in and of itself is our first cause for pause in the light of Christ giving authority. He gives it as an exercise of compassion. He delegates 
He deputizes whatever words you want to use. He bestows upon these men this gift for the purpose of gathering sheep. Now I said we need to understand this section uniquely in one respect because this is a mission that is specifically to Israel. We can't just jump right from this section to the church because you're going to go on and you're going to read about Jesus explicitly saying, don't go to the Gentiles. Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But then as the discussion unfolds, you're going to get the sense that he's also looking beyond that mission into the broader church age into the ongoing ministry of the church, entrusted first to the apostles, starting with Israel, but then going beyond Israel to bring in the nations. Even in Matthew, we've already gotten this sense, the centurion coming and confessing, and Jesus saying, I've not seen faith like this. Even in Israel, truly, those from east and south and west and north are going to come and recline a table with Abraham while the sons of the kingdom are going to be cast out. Jesus already is anticipating the influx of the Gentiles. Indeed, the Old Testament anticipates this. But this section is Jesus discharging his mission to the lost sheep of the house of Israel to gather unto himself God's people from the descendants of Abraham. But beyond that, the heart of the shepherd continues. It's the same heart, beloved. The same heart that sees people as weak and helpless enmeshed in a world of sin and misery and moves towards them. And that leads us to conclude that the church in her official ministry is the ongoing exercise of Christ's compassion for the lost. And that's a good reminder for us in two respects. One, it ought to work to disarm us in that native and deeply entrenched suspicion towards all authority. Levy that observation against that. You have that in you, right? Just like I saw any student posturing themselves in authority over me as grounds to fight that student, so you see anyone who would presume upon any authority over you as grounds to fight that person. Again, that says more about sin than it does about wisdom. Can we agree on that? So then in the church, we have plain testimony that Christ is going to set up apostles, ministers, elders, a structure of authority that are going to be the means by which he continues to exercise this authority unto compassion. We have that observation as good, indeed great reason to go to war against that impulse and to fight for humility to see, even through the operations of frail men, the exercise of the true king. But we also have a good reminder that as the church, we as the church are the institution of compassion for the lost. We forget that, don't we? We have the sole warrant for true compassion. I'm saying true compassion. True compassion. Compassion that sees a world that doesn't know its right hand from its left. As those who are being dominated by a spiritual power they don't understand. That are being bested by their sin so regularly that they don't even acknowledge that they have sin. <laughs> so in love with a world that is passing away that they are all building mansions on sand. And the church's commission here, according to Christ, is that we see all of that going on, and our initial response in our heart is not scoffing at the absurd. It's tenderness for the lost. Can you see that? Is that a fair point? So we see Jesus giving authority, setting up the institutional church as an extension of his compassion for the lost. We also have to observe that the authority is from Christ. 
So again, these are apostles, and in the line of apostles come minister and elder. So we're talking here primarily about the official church, the institutional church, church as represented in her office bearers, church as institution. And elders among us, ministers among us, any ministers who may one day listen to this, we do well to remind ourselves that our authority is not autonomous. It is a ministerial authority. We are representatives, ambassadors, those who are exercising not self-interest, but the interest of the king. Now, this isn't even all that unfamiliar to us in the realm of common affairs. I told you I'm reading I, Claudius by Robert Graves. I finished it last night. The next installment is Claudius the God, which intrigues me as a title, as a minister of the gospel, knowing that he wasn't a god. <laughs> but even there, as you see the affairs of the Roman Empire unfolding, you would see Caesar, Caesar Augustus, or Tiberius Caesar, whomever in those early days of the Roman Empire, something would take place in this or that reach of the kingdom, and he would send someone to go deal with it. My favorite episode is when he sends Germanicus. Germanicus was like the best character in all of early Rome. Yet he dies, he doesn't come to power, it's really sad. Germanicus' son is Caligula, which is really baffling. So Germanicus gets sent as the son to act, not in his own authority, not for his own interests, but in the name of the king, for the interests of the king, and for the interests of the kingdom. Even in human affairs, we see this taking place. But anyone who's ever been in any position of authority knows the temptation to use that authority to advance what? Your own interests. I don't want to spoil the novel for you, but that's a lot of what Caesar did. <laughs> that the position of authority that was granted unto them was primarily not for the interests and the well-being of others. Now make no mistakes, they often convinced themselves that as they pursued their self-interest, and they labored intensely to convince the people that as they pursued their self-interest, it was really for their interest. But the heart of it was what? Seizing upon authority to realize sinful desires. Do you know this temptation? If you don't know this temptation, let me open your eyes to a very real front of your spiritual warfare. That is a temptation, I assure you. If you don't know that you're even fighting on that front, you're being bested on that front every single day. It is a temptation for us all to use the authority, the positions that we've been given, just as it's a temptation for us to use the gifts and the abilities that we've been given not to magnify Christ, to do good unto others, but to advance our own sinful desires like a tiny Caesar. You can see here the explicit purpose for which he gives authority. The authority is given explicitly to bless. That's what it says, plainly, right? And he called to him his twelve disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Now this is partis partotis, or pars partotis, part for the whole. This isn't the whole of the exercise of their authority. They also preach, they proclaim, they announce the kingdom, and then they demonstrate the kingdom's power by driving out demons and by healing. But whether it's the declaration that the kingdom of God is near, the reign of God in grace through Jesus Christ has come to undo strongholds of darkness, to bring hope where there was despair, life where there was death, light where there was darkness, whether they're proclaiming that or whether they're demonstrating the power of the kingdom in actually expelling demons, in actually healing sickness, what can you conclude from all of that? They were sent to bless. Christ gives authority in his name to be a blessing to this sad world. Not to exploit this sad world. And 
not to defame his name by using it to take our place alongside the rest of this sad world, just trying to grab a piece of this pie that's fading away. But to bless as he came to bless. This is the same thing he was doing. Do you see it? This is what he was doing. And he said, go and do that. Was he trying to be made king? He was. My kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of heaven is a matter of righteousness, joy, peace, and the Holy Spirit. Lose your life by gaining. Gain the world by losing. The authority is given to bless. This is what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 4. When reviled, we bless. This is the apostolic mold. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. You can see here the spiritual nature of the kingdom plainly on display. Because it displaces the flesh. What does the flesh do? When reviled, the flesh reviles. When persecuted, the flesh either shrinks back or strikes back. When slandered, the flesh slanders. Not the spirit. The spiritual reign of Christ manifesting itself preeminently here in the life of the apostles, which you saw. We really saw it. It truly manifests itself among men just like us. And it continued to manifest. It wasn't just restricted to the apostolic age. Go, go read Christian biographies, it's there. The spiritual reign of Christ on display in that true blessing issues forth from men whose heart are characterized by spirit and flesh. The world reviles, we pray the Lord blesses them. The Lord persecutes, we persevere because we have a hope that's not tied to the course of this world. We are slandered, and then we return that slander for earnest pleas to see. Do you see? We, we haven't done you any harm. The authority that Christ gives is in order to bless, and this blessing takes the same shape as Christ blessing the world. This is the call of the church. Is this mold that Paul sets forth here is characterizing an apostle ought not to be restricted to the apostles. It's not like he's saying, look, the ministers have to be reviled and then blessed. If they're persecuted, they have to endure. If they're slandered, they have to entreat. We do. <laughs> Please help me. Because <laughs> I feel it too. <laughs> but it's the same spirit that's at work in all of us, beloved. This ought to characterize all of us as we are all participants in the reign of God through grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. So are you aware that this is a temptation of your fallen heart? That as you're reviled, you're tempted to respond in reviling. As you're opposed, you're tempted to shrink back or strike back. As you're slandered, you're tempted to slander back. Are you aware that there's a spiritual war going on on that very front? If you're not, then you're being bested <laughs> regularly. Let me attune you into that front of spiritual warfare, and let me point you to the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ, who makes us participate in this true power. Because the authority that he gives here to drive out spirits and to heal every disease is nothing less than the power of the Holy Spirit. He's going to make this point explicitly in Matthew chapter 2. He says, if I drive out demons by the power of the Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come among you. Beloved, does the Spirit dwell in you? This is the promise for all those who belong to the Lord Jesus. You are dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. That means there is an earnest expectation that this very manner of life, that Paul sets forth, returning, violence, blessing, enduring it, persecuted, treating in the face of slandering. We have earnest expectation that more and more the Spirit will manifest itself in that way. 
because we belong to him. The Lord gives authority in great compassion, beloved. The church is an exercise of his heart of compassion to the lost, authority given for the specific reason of blessing. But we also see that in compassion, the Lord doesn't despise weak servants. This list reminds us that the only servants in the kingdom of the heaven are weak servants. And there's encouragement for us in that. The majority of this section is taken up with the list of the apostles found in verses 2 and 4. So we read, The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. I'm going to make a string of just really quick observations. First, we see that the apostles are a unique and important group. The apostles play a unique and unrepeatable role in God's plan of salvation. In the strict sense, there are no more apostles. Now, there is a broad sense that Scripture uses the term apostles for, meaning just basically messenger or or sent one, as it were. It comes from the Greek verb uh, to send. But the uniqueness of the apostles is pressed upon our hearts here from two observations. First, their names are recorded. (laughs) This is is them. (laughs) Someone comes up to you like, I'm an apostle. Be like, where is your name? (laughs) Because the names are right here. So the first, I'm sorry, that was, that was too much. <laughs> the second observation is that there's 12 of them. And the Lord links this number of 12 to the remaking or the regathering of the Israel of God in the Lord Jesus Christ with the 12 apostles over the 12 tribes of Israel. So again, we feel the uniqueness of this. We're not looking for apostles to continue on after this. We're told that they play a very distinct and important role in God's plan of salvation. And this is what Christ himself says when he tells Peter in Matthew 16 as the representative of the apostles, I'm going to build my church upon you. And this is the same image that Paul uses in Ephesians 2, telling the church that you are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone. Now, I am not a builder. If you need to build a house, call somebody else. I'll pray for you as you do it, but I wouldn't even know where to start. (laughs) Well, that's not true. I know where to start. You start with a foundation, actually, but I wouldn't know how to do it. Everything else depends upon the foundation. The Lord has already used this image in Matthew 7, talking about the two foundations, sand and rock. And his point was, the house is only as good as the foundation upon which it stands. Now, this is the image that Scripture gives us of Christ with the cornerstone and then that witness, that unique witness and authority of the apostles and the prophets being the foundation upon which the rest of the church is built. You see all sorts of conclusions follow from this. They had particular gifts that were much plainer, more dramatic, if you will. They had particular authority. They they and their associates, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned the New Testament. The Lord Jesus Christ wrote nothing. He wrote nothing. One greater than Socrates is here. (laughs) He wrote nothing. It was his followers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, who wrote. These are things that were unique to them and that foundation laying. So we're not looking for that to repeat. But we can say more about that when we come to Matthew 16. I want to highlight the reality of their weakness, which is cut through this whole list. Notice first that these are not great men. These are not the great ones of the earth. 
These are not those who had obtained a certain level of standing and notoriety before the Lord Jesus Christ called them. Peter, Andrew, James, John, fishermen. Matthew was a tax collector. He was a, a bureaucrat. Just a, another cog in a giant, monstrous machine. We know almost nothing about the background of the rest. They are utterly unknown to us. And even when they're brought onto the stage of saving history, we don't know much about them, most of these men. We do know that on the whole, these are not men of learning. They are not men of distinction. They are not men of greatness. Apart from belonging to Christ, they would have been lost to the vastness of the past. Acts 4.13 describes them aptly as common men. These are ordinary people. But an ordinary person with the Lord Jesus Christ is something altogether lovely. That's what we see. Consider how many kings and queens have been forgotten forever. You can't consider them because you don't know them. I assure you, their number is vast. You've probably heard of Caesar Augustus, formerly Octavian. Maybe you've heard of Tiberius Caesar. You've heard of Julius Caesar, undoubtedly Mark Antony, Cleopatra. But likely you don't know the name Livia, Sejanus, Germanicus, Posthumus. Probably not even Claudius, until I started chirping about I, Claudius. (laughs) They were the great ones of the greatest empire of the world. And on the whole, I suspect the names of Peter, James, and John are better known than any of theirs. And yet, how wonderful for us to know that better than being known as an apostle is being known as a servant of the Lord Jesus. So Matthew Henry reflects on. More precious than being written among the apostles is being written in the book of life, which is true of everyone who belongs to Christ. Seek not your distinctions in your gifts, in your accomplishments, in your station. Let this be your distinction, beloved. Not that you are great, but that the one who is truly great is pleased set his love upon you for all time and thereby you are remembered by the king of kings and the lord of lords not only are these men not great they're also sinful men (laughs) we can recall peter's attempt to stop jesus from going to the cross do you remember that bested by satan in that moment get behind me satan he tells peter in the exact same exchange where he says upon you I'm going to build my church that's something Mm -hmm. children do you remember how many times Peter denied the Lord do you remember three times that's right he denied the Lord three times we can recall James and John and their wrong-headed ambition we can recall their constant infighting who's the greatest among us We can recall James and John seemingly with a quick temper early on. Why don't we just call down fire from heaven and the Lord has to rebuke them? We can recall Thomas doubting even though his brothers were bearing plain witness to him. We can recall how they all tried to stop the children from coming to him. And those are just what we have in the record. Matthew tells us again, he's a tax collector. (laughs) And yet as you read the gospel accounts, what do you see? You see the Lord's love for these men. You see him dealing with them in in perfection, in all loveliness. He deals with them in patience, His declarations of the love that he had for the lost, they were the immediate recipients of that. 
He's willing to share bread and wine for them on the very cusp of suffering the wrath of God in their stead because of them. Even in his agony, he's instructing them, watch and pray. Watch. I think about the selflessness there. Think about how easy you get fixed on whatever it is that's causing you discomfort. I was running the other day. My children were playing. They let a ball loose. I was, stop it! Stop it! Like I'm in the midst of distress and my children, whom I love, are exacerbating that distress. Immediately my patience is gone. Here he is on the cusp of a suffering unknown and in gentleness, he's instructing his followers, watch and pray, watch and pray. On the way to the cross, he's making provision for his mother. All of this is recorded for our humbling and our encouragement, beloved. Humbling in that our sin persists even as we walk with the one who died for our sins. That's humbling. Encouraging in that we see time and time again, they stumble and he does not cast them off. That is his heart towards sinners. Can you rejoice in that? Can you feel the encouragement that that is? If you mark no encouragement in that, beloved, you are far from grace. There is encouragement in his heart on display towards these sinful men because it's the same heart that's on display towards you sinful people, towards me as a sinful man. These are not great men. These are sinful men. These are an unlikely group of men. Some of the relationships among these men make sense. Some of these relationships make no sense. Let me draw this out. The, Peter's, uh, the, the Lord's pleased to use two pairs of brothers twice in the list. He reminds us of this. Peter and Andrew are brothers. James and John are brothers. Two quick observations. As often as the gospel severs the bond of family, it strengthens that bond. The Baptists want us to remember that the gospel only severs bonds of families. As Presbyterians, we tell our brothers, yeah, but he also strengthens those bonds, and that's what we see here. Grace does not eradicate nature. It heals and elevates nature. We see that here. The sweetness of those bonds of brotherhood are made sweeter still by the bonds of the gospel. I trust you've tasted that. You have a believing parent, believing children, a believing brother or sister. You know that natural affinity that you bear for them is only intensified by the loveliness of being brothers, sisters, family in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what I want to draw attention to in the light of this weak observation is that the Lord is pleased to use opposites. All right, everybody, I need you to track with me. Matthew is a former tax collector, a servant of the empire. Simon the Zealot is a former insurrectionist, a sworn enemy of the empire. This is a timely observation. Both of these men had to learn to die to their own understanding. Both of these men had to learn how to loosen their grip on the world as they co-labored for the only king and kingdom that endures. You see that? Whatever understanding they had of this world that was passing away was subordinate to the call of Christ. Everything else got relativized. Praise God that not everybody sees things like you do. I trust you thank the Lord for that every night. The greatest disservice anyone could do for you would be to surround you with people exactly like you. That would be nothing less than perdition. Now get to work dying to this sinful and silly thought that what you need most is more people exactly like you. Homeschoolers, you need non-homeschoolers. 
City folk need farmsteaders and vice versa. The old need the young, the young need the old. God is pleased to foster humility in all of us as we learn how to love others who aren't like us, as we fix our eyes on the one who loved all of us and gave his life for us. Is there a good word there? Something to fight for in these dark times? Something that sounds life-giving and other. Just like our God. Two more observations. These are mixed men. Even among the twelve, one of them is a devil. Not only is each man a mixture of grace and sin, we see that the whole is a mixture of wheat and tares, and this even at the level of the office of apostle. But this too is according to God's purpose, and I want us to be both sobered and encouraged by this. It's sobering in that not even an appointment to the sacred office is a guarantee of true participation in grace. So let all officers and potential officers hear this special word. We put no confidence in our office. No one will be able to claim their office as grounds for acceptance with God. The only grounds for acceptance with God is the office of the mediator and the one who occupies it. His love, his righteousness, his blood, his ministry, his intercession. Put no stock in station. But there's also encouragement for us in this, especially for those who have been battered about by abuses of authority. Even in the presence of a traitor, even with a devil occupying the holy and sacred position, God's purposes are not thwarted. Even the traitor played a part in the role of God, in the economy of God's salvation. Now, this does not minimize the dread, the utter nightmare of that betrayal and its outworking. But it is a consolation that God was not bested. Christ was not bested as this imposter did his damage in the closest circle to Christ. Even in the face of the difficulties that fill the church, whether it's a man who acts in sin or whether it's an unregenerate man who has no business to be in office, our hope is not in men. And thus we can persist in hope, especially even when men fail. The Lord is the stronghold of our life. Therefore, we need not fear. And that brings us to the last observation. These are the king's men. For all their commonness, all of their weakness, all of their sin, all of their unlikelihood, they belong to Christ. Christ called them to himself. And so we can close by consoling ourselves that in God's grace, he makes actual sinners his own. He makes weak men and women his own. And he uses them for purposes that far exceed their wildest imagination. These 12 men from a human perspective change the course of history. Fishermen. Not because they had abilities, not because they were perfect, not because they were the likeliest group of heroes. These are as unlikely is Gideon's lappers, a bunch of dogs. They changed the course of history because Christ was with them. Time and time again, this is what you hear. Moses, go. I can't speak. Jeremiah, go. I'm just a boy. I know. I'm with you. fountain of strength, the fountain of consolation, the fountain 
of grace and truth comes to us, not because of our worth, but because of Christ's purposes, beloved. To be with us as Emmanuel. There's no longer apostles, but there are ministers and elders and officers. Furthermore, we're all servants of this great king. And the point I want to press home is that our love for one another must find a surer foundation than the excellencies of our gifts, our conduct. For we all abound in weakness. We all have ample sin at our disposal, do we not? So let this be the foundation. We love one another. We pray for one another because Christ has placed his name upon us. Because we are the king's men. Pray for ministers and elders, not because they are excellent ones, but because the Lord is pleased to use weak men and they desperately need your prayers. Pray for one another, not because you are inherently the excellent ones, but because you belong to the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is pleased to use weak vessels. Whom should you pray for? Who bears the name of the king? That should be sufficient reason for you to plead with our God for his blessing to abound to your fellow servants. I need you to do that for me. You need me to do that for you. So it's purpose to do it for one another to the praise of God's grace. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do give you thanks for this King, whose ways are not our ways, for your ways are not our ways. Help us to sit at his feet, Lord, to receive of his wisdom, to receive of his ministry, even down to this very day. Fill our hearts, O Lord, with an earnest trust towards him, for he is worthy. An earnest love for you, for you have shed your love for us abroad in our hearts that more and more we may flicker forth the excellencies of the one into whose image and likeness we are being made. We pray this in Christ. Amen.